Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. This week, we're going to continue talking about Lupron and Orlissa. If you haven't heard part one of this series, this three-part series, then we highly recommend that you go back and listen because we opened up the In 16 Years file. Talking about how the pharmaceutical companies influence medical education and contribute to the misinformation of doctors. And how we should maintain a healthy level of skepticism with any information that we are given from any source, including this podcast. (laughs) True. So today we're going to talk about the data on Orlissa from clinical trials, the hidden data on Orlissa that didn't match the published data, the (gasps) data on Lupron, and the hidden data that didn't match the published data on Lupron. Brittany, you realize that you just said that same sentence about the hidden data twice. Yes. Yes, I realize. (laughs) Well, that's because it applies to both Lupron and Orlissa. (gasps) I know. Shocking. You know, actually, I think that we should only talk about Orlissa today, and then we can talk about Lupron in a separate episode. Ooh, like a part 2A to the trilogy and a part 2B. Okay, okay. I like your thinking, especially since one of us is a little long-winded and tends to like to go into a lot of detail about everything. Oh, you? Yeah, no, you. Oh. (laughs) Well, since one of us is a little long-winded and likes to go into a lot of detail about everything, I think it's good to give a little bit of breathing room (laughs) between Lupron and Orlissa. There's a lot to know. And then, in part three of this series, we're going to talk about the side effects. Okay, Brittany, but fill the listener in on a little bit more information, por favor. See, <laughs> we, yeah, <laughs> because we're not just going to talk about the side effects, but we are going to talk about how the GnRH drugs affect our bodies, the permanent side effects, the general side effects, the lawsuits <gasps> about the side effects, the FDA complaints about the side effects. Oh my, I see a pattern. I hear the word side effects a lot. I'm sensing a pattern. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what the next episode is about. Joking aside, these things are really, really important to think about before taking these serious medications. So we really hope that you'll tune in to listen to part three of this series as well. Before we start, we just want to make clear that we are not on a crusade against Lupron or Orlissa. What we are is we are on a crusade against the spread of misinformation and the lack of transparency around these drugs. Our goal is not to convince you to take these drugs or to not take these drugs. That is not our place to tell you what to do or to give advice on that. That 
is your own personal independent decision that you should make with your doctor. Rather, what we want to do is we just want to help inform you of the facts that we learned so that you can be better equipped to make the best decision for your own body. So I wanted to do a little review of our quick facts uh, from the last episode. So this may be familiar, but we wanted to do a little reminder because we thought it was important. So we wanted to remind you that no medicines can treat endometriosis. They only treat the symptoms. If your doctor tells you otherwise, unfortunately, they're misinformed. Remember that endo can still progress and grow while you're on Lupron or Lyssa or any GnRH drugs. These drugs aren't your only option for symptom management, and they can cause long-term and permanent side effects. And we'll talk about that in another part of our series. All right, so Lupron and Arlissa have worked for some people, but it hasn't worked for many others. If you decide to take one of these drugs, we hope and we pray that it will work for you. If you are taking them, we want nothing more for them than providing you relief. You deserve relief from your symptoms. We all do. So if that's the option that you choose, we really, really hope that they work for you. We are going to talk now about the results of the clinical trials for Orlissa. And the reason why we want to talk about the actual data surrounding the efficacy of these drugs is because we want transparency and honesty around the information presented to us so that we can make the best informed choice for ourselves and for our bodies. That's what we want. We want relief, <laughs> but we also want to be able to make an informed decision about whether or not we're going to actually get relief. Okay, Brittany, what does Orlissa and Lupron do for endometriosis? Well, technically for endometriosis, they don't do anything. But for the pain that comes from endometriosis, these drugs may help reduce that level of pain. It's not effective in everybody, so that's why we say may. Do they get rid of my pain forever, Brittany? No. Well, that's terrible. I know. The pain management is temporary. While you're taking the medication, if it's effective for you, the pain can be lessened. But once you stop taking the medication, you may have a recurrence of the pain after about two to three months. Just the way it was, if not worse, as the endo's been untouched and just growing and thriving in there. And because you can only be on it for a short period of time, eventually you will have to go off the medication and you may have a reoccurrence of that severe debilitating pain. Okay, so I can only be on a GnRH drug for a short period of time and then I have to go off it and then my symptoms may, slash most likely, will come back when I'm off the drug. So how long can I be on the drug? Hopefully get in relief. Hopefully. Maybe not, but hopefully. How long? Five years, tell me. Ten years. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint. <laughs> okay, how long, Brittany? So these are approvals by the FDA, and which is in America. It's our federal drug administration. It determines if drugs are safe and how long you should take them for. So the FDA has approved that people can take Lupron for six months. 
and they can take it for a second six months as long as they do add back therapy to reduce the risk of their bone loss. What about Orlissa? How long has the FDA approved Orlissa to be used for endometriosis pain? So there's two different dosage levels with Orlissa. And at the higher dose, you can utilize the drug for six months. That's it. Just six months. Six months? That's it? But I want relief for a longer. I know. <laughs> okay, but hold on, hold on, oh, hold on, oh, hold on. Oh. There is a lower dose that's been approved by the FDA, and you can take it for up to two years. Now you're talking, baby. Yeah. So if it works for me, I might get two years that my pain is decreased. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that chances are high that my pain will come back within a few months of going off it. But two years, we're talking two years until that would potentially happen. Two solid years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my dream has been granted. Two years. <laughs> and that's true and a very good thing to have relief for two years. However, it's also important to remember that with that two years, does come multiple other potential side effects. Oh, Brittany, come on. I was basking in the glory over here. Lousy side effects. Do you want me to make it even worse and tell you that sometimes these side effects are irreversible or permanent? Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Why are you going to do that to me? All like, I'm giving you information. I don't want it. How are your side effects? <laughs> because facts want, are important. I just want the relief, Brittany. I know you do. But I really do. But facts are very important, which is why we're going to talk about them in the next episode. All the facts and all the side effects. Fine. I will wait until the next episode. <sighs> <laughs> so snooty. What I want to know, and I wasn't able to find information on, is if a person has taken the maximum recommended dose of Lupron, which is for 12 months, and now they want to take Orlissa, are they able to do so? Because the 12 months for Lupron is the recommended dose for the lifetime. And since these drugs, while they're not the same drugs, they work on the same GnRH pathways, and they have the same effect on the body that they cause medical menopause, they have very similar side effects, one of which is the risk of bone mass density loss. I wonder what the safety is for a person who has taken Lupron and now wants to take Orlissa. So if you are in that situation listening where you've taken the max dose of Lupron or perhaps even longer because your doctor had you prescribed on that for longer than the recommended approved time, and now you're thinking about taking Orlissa, I would definitely bring up these concerns with the doctor. These recommendations were made for each drug individually and specifically, but I haven't seen recommendations on stacking these drugs and, you know, using one and then using the other. I don't know if research has been done on taking Lupron and then taking Orlissa. I could not find research done on it. And Orlissa is new on the marketplace. It only came out in August of 2018. So I think with Orlissa, we are going to see that more research is needed in various aspects of the drug. 
because only when a drug comes to marketplace and is being used by thousands and thousands of people is when we begin to see the different adverse side effects that can pop up outside of the clinical trials or the different complications that can pop up with the drug or the long-term effects of the drug. So personally, I think that more research has to be done in this regard. All right, Brittany, so the million-dollar question that everyone has been waiting for, do these drugs work for treatment of your endometriosis pain? That's a great question. Let's dive in, shall we? So first, let's talk about what Orlissa is being marketed to do. Those three things are to reduce period pain, reduce pelvic pain, and to reduce pain with sex. So on Orlissa's website, there are these cute little graphs, and they show the percentages of the clinical trial and how many people participated, and what they've reported are the percentages of the results of these trials. So first, we're going to talk about the period pain, and they've reported that for reduced period pain at three months, so 373 people took the placebo, and of that group of people, 20% reported that they felt a reduction in pain at three months. Oh my God, 20%? That's one in five people had a reduction in period pain taking the placebo? Yeah. I want that placebo. <laughs> I know, right? Oh Where can I get that? I want that placebo. It's <laughs> a pretty great reduction for a placebo. Hey, the mind is powerful. I placebo know. is The placebo effect is real. And important. It's been studied and proven. The next group of participants was 244 people, and they took the low dose of Orlissa, which is 150 milligrams, and they reported that 46% of them had a reduction in period pain at three months. That sounds promising, 46%. Yeah, almost half. Almost half had a reduction in period pain on the low dose. Okay. And finally, on the higher dose, which is 200 milligrams twice per day, 248 people took that dosage. And of that amount of people, 76% of them reported that they had reduced period pain at three months. Ooh, that sounds... That's three quarters. Remarkable. That's incredible. But guess what? I'm guessing it's skewed as everything in our world is. So Dr. David Redwine, our hero, our absolute hero, who is such an endometriosis advocate and researcher devoting his whole career to the correct facts of endometriosis and stopping misinformation, He's spent 30 years researching about the proper treatment for endo. That's a lot of time. Wow. He's also a very experienced endo-excision surgeon. That's also very relevant. Wow. And prior to his retirement, he was very well known for being an expert at this. Wow. He still is, by the way. <laughs> I feel like the only word I can say is, wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, he's highly qualified. Some of his research is on endopedia.info, which is a website we often highly recommend. And we love. Yes, so go read more about him. But he is highly qualified to talk about this. He... Again, love him. He, he went to the 2017 publication of the data in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very prestigious medical journal. And he went to the supplemental appendix of the article. Wait, the article that had the data from Orlissa's clinical trials? Yes. Where he found 
the intent to treat analysis data hidden there. What is the intent to treat analysis? It was all hidden in the supplemental appendix of the article. Sounds accurate. (laughs) Basically, the intent to treat analysis is a method for analyzing the data in a randomized, controlled trial. From what I understand, it involves including all of the participants in the statistical analysis and according to the group that they were originally assigned. Essentially, it's supposed to help the investigator draw accurate conclusions about whether or not the treatment is effective. So the intent-to-treat analysis helps against bias, and it maintains the benefits of randomization. Whew, that was sciencey. Yes, it was. But Literally. The la- but the last part is important. The intent-to-treat analysis helps against bias and maintains the benefits of randomization. So it's just like a different way of analyzing all of the data in the clinical trial. Less bias, more integrity. Exactly. (laughs) And including all the participants in the statistical analysis. This is what the doctor who is actually prescribing Orlissa would see in patients that they intended to treat. Oh, so it's like, here's the real life application percentages. You want to hear them? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. On the low dose, Orlissa's website states that 46% of the 244 people who used it saw a reduction in period pain at three months. The intent to treat analysis data showed the conclusion that only 22.6% had a reduction in period pain. Well, that's a very stark difference. That's less than half of the number on Orlissa's website. So Orlissa's website said 46%, and Dr. Redwine is saying 22%. An unbiased analysis that gave a very different number is very telling. What about for the high dose? Well, remember that the high dose had that impressive 76%. Yeah, out of 248 people, 76% of them having a reduction in pain is incredible. The intent to treat analysis data was that only 47% would have a reduction in period pain. Wow. Which is less than half of the people taking the medicine. According to the intent to treat analysis, only 47% of people, not 76% as the data reported on Alyssa's website, but only 47% of people had a reduction in their period pain. We're looking at a really big difference in the data published versus the data from the intent-to-treat analysis. The intent-to-treat analysis shows that much less people are going to respond to Orlissa than what it's being marketed for. The numbers on Orlissa's website are much higher. And to me, I think that's misleading. And it gives a false sense of hope. If I'm taking a medication like this, it's because I want it to relieve my pain. I want it to work for me. So when I look at the results on Orlissa's website and I see this very promising information 
that three-quarters of people on the high dose had a reduction in their pain? That sounds incredible. That sounds hopeful. So if I was going to try Orlissa and risk permanent side effects, I would want to know the likelihood that it was actually going to work for me, that I was actually going to respond to the medicine. And I would want that likelihood to be high, like three-quarters of people. But to hear that using the full data and the intent-to-treat analysis shows that less than half had a reduction in pain, I don't feel the same hope for that. That percentage makes it seem more like a gamble for a result rather than an almost promise that it will work. Or Alyssa could definitely still work if you took it. I mean, it worked to reduce period pain in almost half of the people that took it in the clinical trials. But yeah, I mean, like you said, the intent to treat analysis is showing that the chances that it will work are much lower than advertised. Okay, so surely it's better for the next category, which is pelvic pain between periods. So let's look at the published data first versus the intent to treat analysis data. Okay, so for the pelvic pain, which is pelvic pain in between periods, the group of people who took the placebo, 36% of them reported that they had less pelvic pain in between periods with the placebo. Wow. Like, whoa. A third of them. I like it. That's a lot. God, I want that placebo. So then out of the people taking the 150 milligram, the low dose of Orlissa, 50% reported that they had a reduction in pelvic pain between periods. Half of them, huh? Yeah. Guess what the intent-to-treat analysis data said? Oh, I'm ready. It's much lower. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> it's like much, much lower. 12.5%. Wow, that's extreme. But okay, but the high dose has to be better, right? Mm-hmm. So the high dose, 200 mm-hmm. milligrams twice a day. Mm-hmm. of people who took that saw a reduction in their pelvic pain, according to ABFI. Okay, tell me what Dr. Redwine found out. Well, he found out that the intent-to-treat analysis data conclusion was... Drumroll, please. (laughs) 18%. Oh, come on. (laughs) That's frustrating me. Honestly, that's pretty abysmal. That's still lower than the placebo. That's pretty abysmal. The placebo at this point is just as good as the drug. Breaking news. The data percentages displayed publicly by AbbVie and the data percentages hidden in the supplemental appendix in the intent-to-treat analysis do not align. So what I want to point out is that When you look at the studies published in medical journals, they say things at the end of the study, things like this. This article was supported by AbbVie. Keep in mind that AbbVie is the company that makes Orlissa. This article was supported by AbbVie. Such and such person who wrote this article is a board member of AbbVie. Such and such person received a grant from AbbVie. Such and such has equity interests in AbbVie. Such and such is a consultant for AbbVie. Such and such are AbbVie employees. AbbVie participated in data analysis and interpretation of the data. Such and such has received a speaker's fee from AbbVie. This study was funded by AbbVie. 
that's fascinating because fascinating or repugnant fascinating repugnant repulsive terrifying illuminating <laughs> concerning it's con- alarming yes, it's all of those words because essentially all of these articles were sponsored by abv written by paid employees of abv stockholders of abv all of these articles were written by the people who created it by a biased opinion in my opinion That's a little bit like actual propaganda. I'm just astounded because I thought medical research couldn't be biased or couldn't be bought. Well, Brittany, don't hold back your flabbergasm. (laughs) So flabbergasted. (laughs) I'm frustrated. So honestly, the question becomes, can we even trust medical research anymore? So recently I heard about a book, and it is called The Truth About Drug Companies, How They Deceive Us, and What to Do About It. Wow. It was written by Dr. Marsha Angel, who is from the Harvard Medical School, who is also very, very importantly the former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. Wow, she knows what's up. Yeah, and that's a very respected medical journal. And that, as I mentioned, is the medical journal where Dr. Redwine went to get the data in the supplemental appendix so that he could get the intent to treat conclusions. So she wrote an article, which I saw online, and it's called Drug Companies and Doctors, A Story of Corruption. (gasps) She's exposing everybody. (laughs) I love the title. Oh, my goodness. A Story of Corruption. And she basically says that she doesn't think it's possible any longer to believe much of the clinical research that's been published. To paraphrase what she said, she says she's not happy to make that statement, but she reached that conclusion over her career two decades that she was the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And in the article, she just talks about how the pharmaceutical industry influences doctors and medical schools are teaching the medicine. And then, of course, all of that misinformation and bias, it gets passed along to them, and then it gets passed along to us as the consumer. Because we are the patient, but we're also the consumer of these medications that pull in billions of dollars per year. Like we said, they're still a product. That's still selling a product. Do you know how much money Lupron made in 2018? No, but I feel like I'm going to cry once you tell me. <laughs> In 2018, Lupron made $892 million. Oh, my goodness. Worldwide. Now, keep in mind that Lupron is sold for precocious puberty. So it's treating children who go into puberty early. It's treating prostate cancer. It's treating fibroids. And it's treating endometriosis. It's probably also being used off-label, so being used for purposes that it was not intended to be or approved by the FDA to be used for. So they pulled in $892 million worldwide. That's an incredible amount of money. Guess how much they made in 2017? Hmm. How much? $829 million. Oh, my gosh. 2016? $821 million. By 2025, it's projected that Orlissa will make a total of $2 billion in revenue a year. Wow. A year. $2 billion on revenue a year. Well, it's the new and improved treatment for endometriosis. Oh, excuse me. 
moderate to severe endometriosis pain. <laughs> so precise. The first new and approved FDA treatment in over 10 years. Well, AbbVie brought Orlissa to market just as their patent on Lupron was running out. Coincidence? Funnily enough. I think not. And now they're aggressively marketing it. How else do you think they're going to reach their projected amount of $2 billion by 2025? This is so important to us because we want you to know all of the facts about something that you're going to put in your body. The side effects, whether or not it's shown to be effective in the clinical trials, and even the background information on the company making these drugs. We just want you to know all of the facts so that you can think critically about your treatment options and you can make the decision that is best for you. Because in my opinion, our health is one of and possibly the most important thing that we have. I think that we all know in this community that without our health, everything in our life just becomes so much more challenging and difficult. It is so awful to live with endometriosis. It is awful to have pain every day. Some of us have pain every day. Some of us have flares and periods that are absolutely excruciating and debilitating. It is awful. Brittany and I want nothing more than for you to find something that helps relieve your pain. As someone who was desperate for pain relief, I was so desperate to relieve my pain for so many years to get rid of my crippling pain. So I really empathize with anyone listening who is just who is in so much pain And they just want to get rid of their pain. Like, I see you. I hear you. I felt it. And I get it. And it's just, it's really, really hard. We talked about my experience with Depo and how I made a decision with no information based on incorrect information from a misinformed doctor. I made a decision out of fear and out of desperation. And that's why it's so important for Brittany and I to bring all of this information to you today, even information that maybe you're listening and you're like, okay, well, is this really relevant? How much money AbbVie made on these drugs or they're projected to make? And that might not be important for you to make your decision, but maybe for other people, it will be important. So we just want to bring All the facts that we found surrounding these two drugs that are commonly prescribed for endometriosis, and we want to lay them on the table, and we just want to allow you to interpret all the facts the way that you may and make the best decision that is right for you. And it's so important for Amy and I to go super deep into this information because we care so much about every single person in this community. And because of experiences like Amy's with Depo, we don't want other people in this community to have experiences like that. We've also talked to and heard from and seen many other people report that they've had terrible experiences with these drugs specifically. And nobody should have to have an experience like that on top of experiencing endometriosis. It's also really important to talk about these practices of pharmaceutical companies. You may think they're a little like, okay, guys, but it's really important to know what these companies are doing and their motives 
it can really take you down this winding rabbit hole just how deep it goes. So going back to the data for Alyssa, the third and final thing that the FDA approved it for was relieving pain during sex. Oh, God, I want that relief. (laughs) Who doesn't want that relief? Probably people who don't have pain during sex. Oh, lucky people. Are those people out there? But they would want relief if they did have pain during sex. So everyone wants that. So what did they say? What percentage of people had relief from pain during sex on Orlissa? Come on, Brittany, what percentage? 50%? 100%? No, I doubt it would be 100, but the how per- many? Come okay, on. Okay, Come okay, on. okay, okay, okay. So first things first, it was only proven effective on the high dose, the 200 milligram dose, not on the low dose. Okay, well, it's still promising that if I take the high dose that I can relieve my pain during sex. So how many? What's the percentage, Brittany? Come on, don't leave me hanging. Give me the percentage so I can know my probability that I might be one of those people who can have relief from pain during sex. Well, the percentage is there is no percentage. Huh? What do you mean there's no percentage? (laughs) Unlike the other two categories that gave us quantifiable percentages, for this third category, Orlissa simply states that this drug was proven to relieve pain with sex. Huh? Why would they just state that? Where's my cute little graph showing (laughs) I want to know the percentage numbers? Are you sure that you didn't just scroll too quickly down the page? Yes, Amy, I'm sure. If you want me to open the website, I will show you exactly where it says percentage for the first category, percentage for the second category, and a sentence for the third category, which is just... Orlissa was proven to relieve pain with sex. No percentage, no quantifiable data, nothing. Seems a little fishy, doesn't it? Kind of, yeah. Is it? Anyone else smell that? I thought we got rid fishy? of the depot fish. We're going to have more Ro- rotty fish in here. salmon? <laughs> Ooh, salmon. You had to go fancy. <laughs> this is very suspicious to me. So you're telling me that there are percentages for the other two categories pelvic pain between periods and reducing period pain. But there's no percentage. There's no graph. There's just a statement about how it relieves pain during sex. Correct. That's just not something that would be left out on the website. I mean, that's not an oversight. I think we all know that Big Pharma doesn't leave things out on accident. And they have a history of leaving things out on purpose when it doesn't show the results they want it to show for the data. This is actually an example of cherry-picking information. By the way, I have to feel like if you go pick cherries, I'm not sure it would be very fun. (laughs) Don't they, like, use those machines that, like, shake the trees and all the cherries come down? I don't even think anybody cherry-picks anymore. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe that's the problem. They're just shaking the tree and all of the positive results fall and all the negative ones stay up and they only count the positive ones and they leave the negative ones. That's the problem. (laughs) And I know that we consulted the article in the New England Journal of Medicine where the data was published on the clinical trials, and we could actually see in the data that it reported that pain with sex was relieved at three months on the high dose. But there was a no mention of anything about pain with sex being relieved at six months. 
And in this article, all the other data was showing at three months, at six months, at three months, at six months. And then you get to pain during sex and it's like at three months, it relieved pain. And then it's just blank. Nothing. There's no sentence. On to the next paragraph. And Dr. Redwine actually came to the conclusion that Orlissa is not effective at six months for painful sex. Well, yeah, because where's the data? It would be there if there was a conclusion that they wanted to draw that would help perpetuate their motive. Well, first, that's highly disappointing that there's no data on that. I would even say that that, I mean, that's skewing the information. Leads you to question what else of the information is skewed. All it says was, Orlissa was proven to relieve pain with sex, with no further information about that. So the question is, for the person who is taking it, will it actually relieve pain during sex? And if it relieves it maybe at three months, does that mean it's not going to relieve it anymore at six months? Did those benefits go away or, you know, were they not sustained after three months? Or it brings up a lot of questions, especially if you're taking this high dose, because they say on their website that pain with sex was relieved only with the high dose. And we've already said that with the high dose, you can take it for a shorter period of time than for the low dose. So maybe you're taking the high dose for six months because you want relief of pain during sex. And maybe you're not going to get that and you've missed the opportunity to take the low dose for two years where the low dose doesn't treat pain with sex, but the low dose could have possibly given you two years of period pain and pelvic pain relief. That's why it's important that I have all the information so that I can make my decision what dose do I want, how long do I want to be on it, what symptoms do I want it to treat of mine. That's really important information that, again, I can't make with what they give to us. So now we just talked about the data that was listed on Orlissa's website and also the data that Dr. Redwine unearthed in the supplemental appendix of the article that was published with the intent to treat analysis. So now I, I feel like, you know, there's a lot to think about in hearing all of that data and also all the other things that we talked about in this episode. One of the last things that we want to talk about is the conclusions that the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, the conclusions that they put together on Orlissa. Amy, what is the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review? That sounds very fancy. So their acronym is ICER, ICER, which may or may not be ICER, <laughs> or it might be ICER. We're going to call it ICER. We're going to call it ICER. Awesome. <laughs> so if you're listening and you're from ICER, ICER, we're sorry that we butcher. If we butcher that, <laughs> if we're so If you don't so call sorry. yourselves ICER, you should. <laughs> Absolutely. And you should all go around on ice skates. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Frozen 3, ICER. <laughs> so ICER is an independent, which is nice. So it's independent. It's nonprofit. It's a research institute. And what it does is it produces reports analyzing the evidence on the effectiveness and value of drugs and other medical services. So when you said independent, you mean it's not supported by a pharmaceutical company. It's not backed by one. There is not a bias because there's a money trail to follow. Exactly. It's independent. It's nonprofit. So they're not trying to make a profit. They're all about the good of the people. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Thank you, ICER. Oh, thank you so much. And they're a research institute. So okay. they know what they're talking about. Exactly. So, so they put together a report 
on Orlissa. And this report was the result of almost a year of gathering information. There was a presentation of the research. There was a panel discussion in which a group of varied medical professionals heard about Orlissa and all the available evidence on the drug. And not only that, but the council also heard comments from subject matter experts and patient advocates. And who might that be? Me? Not you. (laughs) You're right. Whatever. We're not that cool yet. (laughs) But these people are. Tell us who. Okay. So that included Dr. Martin Robbins, who, who is an endometriosis specialist and excision surgeon. Heather Guidon, she's the program director at the Center for Endometriosis Care in Atlanta, Georgia. And also Casey Berna. And she's the director of the program and partnerships at EndoWhat. If you're not familiar with EndoWhat, then we highly recommend their website, which is endowhat.com. And they also made a movie about endometriosis that we really recommend. To me, though, what is the most interesting is that nobody from ABV attended the ICER presentations or discussions. They didn't even participate. So what are some of the conclusions that ICER came to? Well, in their public report, which anyone can access, by the way, so if you want, you can also go access this report. And the report was done in July 2018. They had a whole lot of conclusions on Elagalix, which keep in mind is the drug name, as we said, for Orlissa. They had a lot of conclusions on Elagalix. We're all waiting with bated breath, Amy. What were they? What were they? Well, what do you want to know? Okay, okay, okay. God, I don't have the report memorized, or do I? <laughs> you probably do. Let's be honest with ourselves. I have a photographic memory. No, I'd be so amazing. That'd be cool. <laughs> or would it? Probably cool. <laughs> I'd be overloaded with information. I already feel overloaded. I, know, I was going to say, after all this research, I already feel overloaded with information. Oh, my brain is tired. <laughs> but back to the report. Okay. So, what about using Elagalix or Lissa compared to no treatment at all? They said that the evidence was promising, but inconclusive. What? Okay, I liked the promising. You had me promising. But inconclusive, meaning using the medication didn't show any kind of conclusive results over not using anything at all? That's mind-blowing to me. Correct, Brittany. What else do you want to know? So many things, but I'll go slow. So what about comparing Orlissa to other treatment options like Depo? Okay, so they did phase two studies comparing Elagalix to, Brittany, Depo-medroxyprogesterone acetate. Wow. Excellent job. <laughs> Thank you. That is the drug name, and it, at least in the U.S., it commonly goes by Depo-Provera. So in the studies that compared Elagalix to Depo-Provera, they saw that Elagalix at the low dose, because we talk about the high dose and the low dose, so Elagalix at the low dose they found that taking that daily was similar or inferior to taking Depo-Provera. Wow. I mean, that's kind of shocking because I would think that it would be much better than Depo. 
Well, okay, what about Orlissa compared to Lupron? Don't get your hopes up. Oh, rats. So they did two phase two studies that compared Elagalix to Luperelin acetate. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. Also commonly known as Lupron. And they also found the same conclusion that they found with the depot. Oh, come on. They found that at the low dose of Elagalix taken daily was similar or inferior to taking Luperelin acetate or Lupron. Similar or inferior. And the same thing they saw with Depo. I want to be shocked, but at this point I'm just not. <laughs> it's just, it's disappointing because they've come out with this new drug. And it is really great that it's a pill. So, you know, it's not like the shot that gets in your system and stays there. Like, you can stop taking Orlissa at any time. Like, if you have side effects that you can't tolerate, for example... You can stop taking Orlissa, and I think that's, a, that's really positive in comparison to Lupron, where you go and get the shot, and then it's just kind of out of your hands until the drug comes out of your system. But it just feels disappointing that the outcomes on Elagalix are just being shown to be the same or less than the other treatments like Lupron or Depo-Provera. Or even compared to no treatment, I mean, promising but inconclusive, like, we need more information, basically, on Orlissa. So the last thing I want to know about the conclusions in ICER's report is about the safety of Elagalix, Orlissa. So what the report states about the safety is, and I'll quote, it says, Since endometriosis-related symptoms recur after stopping treatment, it remains to be determined whether Elagalix is safe or effective for long-term use. End quote. So essentially, they're not sure about the safety of Elagalix for long-term use. Exactly. So they said it remains to be determined, which means that they still have to get more information about the safety of taking this drug long-term. So the key points that were taken away from this is that the data was insufficient, <laughs> promising but inconclusive, and the outcomes were similar or inferior to comparative therapies. All of those statements sound very different from the story that's the told by Orlissa's website. With the butterflies. Mm -hmm. Everything we just talked about was kind of surprising. I mean, shocking and ultimately disappointing. We want to all take a collective minute to let everyone listening and us also in this box take a collective breath. Ready? Breathe in. Breathe out. Oh, so nice. Go take a little break for yourself, a little minute of meditation, a cup of tea. We just want to say that if you are on Orlissa or Lupron, we hope that it's working for you. And if it is, then we are so happy for you. It is so fantastic when we can find something that can work to relieve our endometriosis pain, our relentless, at times debilitating, often chronic endometriosis pain. And while oftentimes the relief that we get on these drugs is temporary, at least it can hopefully buy us some time so that we can figure out our next options. 
and that we can keep managing and that we can keep fighting the fight daily. If you're taking Lupron or Orlissa, or you're considering taking Lupron or Orlissa, please don't do it feeling shame. In our community and in many communities, there can be a lot of shame with certain treatment options. And if you've made a decision for yourself using all of the facts and research, then please do not feel shame for that decision. There should be no judgment in our community for what people choose to do to help them live day to day. That's all we're all trying to do is just make it through every single day. And as a community, we should support each other and band together. Some of us are suffering so much that this is the decision we need to make in the now in order to get to the next decision. So please don't feel shame for your choices. Please don't feel like we're judging you or anybody else in the community is judging you. It should be a community of support. And we are so proud of what you do every single day to get to the next day in order to live with endometriosis. We are so proud of every single one of you. And we hope you're as proud of yourselves for the decisions you make just to live day to day as we are of you. In part 2B of this trilogy, although it's kind of not a trilogy anymore, right? Because now it's four episodes. It's kind of like a quadrilogy. <laughs> it's a tetralogy. <laughs> oh, yeah. seriously that yeah it's latin <laughs> and you just knew that off the top of your head without any planning or writing that down or looking that up on google i read a lot of books <laughs> and here i was saying quadrilogy i kind of like yours better the q is quite satisfying what is it again tetralogy okay tetra for four logia for okay i'll stop <laughs> okay hold on everyone just take a deep breath for a minute and just let Brittany. i'm gonna leave <laughs> I'm just so, I've become speechless because I'm so impressed because I'm just, first of all, I'll leave now. I mean, it's Latin or Greek or something, but, um, okay, let's, let's go to more interesting stuff. <laughs> that, that was amazing. I, the nerd got out. I like to leave her out. She's fine. She does well. <laughs> oh my God. Well, in our tetralogy or trilogy, basically in our part 2B, we are going to talk about the effectiveness of Lupron. And as Brittany mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we are going to reveal how, in many ways, the published data did not match the raw data, which is very disappointing. Then in the actual part three of our tetralogy, we'll talk about both drugs together and their side effects. Thank you so much for listening today to our episode on Orlissa and to tuning into this trilogy or tetralogy on Lupron and Orlissa. If you'd like to reach out to us, we are on Instagram at in16yearsofendo, and we are on the website in16years.com. Just as a reminder, if you love our podcast, you can share it on social media, rate it in your podcast app, or buy us a coffee. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye!